Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to our prestigious regional podcast, New Books in Anthropology. My name is Piers Kelly and I'm literally shaking because my guest today is none other than the chair of the Anthropology Department of Collegeville, Indiana, the true birthplace of American anthropology. The chair is the author of numerous self-acclaimed works and has published over 78 devastating book reviews in prestigious local journals. The chair has also participated in over 124 regional conferences as both a presenter and attendee. Today, of course, we are discussing the chair's latest work, Being Your Bestest Anthropologist, a guide to unlocking your neat self. This work is already being held up as the canonical text of the Midwest paradigm. But those of us who are entrenched in the Midwest paradigm are all too aware of a shadowy academic cabal intent on preventing us all from learning the truth and of being our bestest. For this reason, we have to communicate in clandestine ways, and we have taken the precaution of sending our questions through the mysterious intermediary known to us as the letter Y. This is so that the chair can record answers using a voice changer that Dr. Peters developed on the Compact Presario. But our in-house linguistic anthropologist has spliced in the tapes with such precision that the following interview is going to sound like a cosy, naturalistic chat over a few tall glasses of Seagram 7 at a Texas roadhouse. Chair, welcome to the podcast. Oh, hello, hello. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us, Mr. Pierce. We, we're literally shaking with excitement as we speak. So if our voices tremble a little bit, you know why. We're just so happy that we are finally, finally getting some of the recognition. Hold on. Lucy, Lucy, can you turn it down a little? Can... Yeah. Sorry. That's our, our office assistant, Lucy. She really enjoys listening to Huey Lewis in the news through a boombox she carries around. So it can be a little distracting. But thank, thank you for having us on your iPods cast, Mr. Beers. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to meet you and Lucy out here in the field. And I want to emphasize that these whiskeys are coming out of my departmental budget, I insist. Now, your book is written as a series of 44 tips representing each year of the life of Franz Boas after he metamorphosed into the founder of American anthropology. These tips, which cover the classic four fields of anthropology, are then structured into what is essentially an efficacious ritual to become your bestest anthropologist. The book guides readers through the process of establishing themselves, changing personal habits, developing themselves professionally, and spreading the word of anthropology. But it also includes touching vignettes and thick descriptions of anthropological life. And by thick, of course, we now know to use the correct spelling, T-H-I-C-C. To be quite honest, before I read your book, I was not my bestest anthropologist. I felt like Donald Rumsfeld flailing around in unknown unknowns. 
But from the very first pages, my eyes were literally opened when I learned that Franz Boas was not born in Westphalia, but in Collegeville, Indiana. Suddenly, a whole lot of other things made sense. Tell me, why does Wikipedia and the anthropological establishment continue to suppress the truth about this? You know, we we send many of our powerhouse faculty out into the greater Collegeville community to ask community members about Franz Boas. And sometimes, sadly, we're met with stares and agitation. And for one, many of them ask us how we got in their homes and simply won't respond after that. Everyone needs to remember that Franz Boas was the founder of American anthropology, which basically means he had to have been born in the U.S. So what is more logical? That he was born somewhere in Europe? (laughs) That doesn't sound very reasonable to us. That would make him the founder of European anthropology. And we all know that that's incorrect. Plus, we hear they didn't even have real football there, so how can we watch the Colts? To get back to your question, many are unaware that Franz Yuri Boas was born right here in Collegeville. And such truths have often been kept down by an academic cabal that is thought to obfuscate our knowledge of the founder. Part of this reason is pretty much why we wrote the book. So there's a growing recognition that those involved with the cabal want to credit anthropology to those less desirable coastal areas like New York or California, but not Indiana. Let's talk about Indiana then. You describe the state as, and I'm quoting here, a powder keg, a super volcano waiting to explode anthropological knowledge all over your face. What makes Indiana the natural home of anthropology? And how might one explain the general precepts of the Midwest paradigm to the uninitiated? That is an excellent question, Mr. Pierce. Now, northwestern Indiana is one of the greatest places to do anthropology because in some respects, there's simply really nothing to do other than anthropology. We do have some amazing places like the Indiana Dunes or the Pakisak system of convenience stores, but those tend to be the most useful for research to look at foodways and maybe economic systems. Now, the Midwest paradigm is simply the greatest, most useful framework for anthropologists to anthropology. We point out that if your ideas are developed outside of the Midwest, they are simply passe and most likely wrong. In a sense, we avoid clearly defining what the Midwest paradigm actually is, and we do so to avoid scrutiny by jealous academics. The more precise and clear you are in your academic slant, the easier it is for others to knock you down. So in a way, our Midwest paradigm becomes about knocking other people down via devastating book reviews, and what is left becomes our anthropological truth. Moving on to changing personal habits with a view to being your bestest anthropologist, I want to start with yams. One reviewer wrote that your book dramatically changed their fundamental outlook on yams and yam-based research. Could you please tell us what the yam cram is and why it's so important? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, Now, everybody knows that yams make the world go round. And there is no single food that has ever had a greater contribution to cultures 
into anthropologists than yams. Let me let me tell you something right here, Mr. Pierce. Did you know that over 93% of publications written in the Boazian era have a reference to yams? What this means is that to be your bestest anthropologist, you need to consume massive amounts of yams. It is not unusual for some of our faculty to consume an entire shopping cart full of yams in one week. So the yam cram itself is a tried and true tested approach to get the yams inside of you. This means not just cooking the yams, but also blending them into delicious smoothies or even drying them and snorting them. Just a word of warning though, the yam cram can produce vivid hallucinations of anthropologists. One time, Dr. Peters became so delirious on yams that he thought he saw Margaret Mead at the bowling alley in the lane next to him. She bowled a perfect game. To this day, we're not really sure if it really was her or not, but it certainly attests to the power of yams. That power is also, of course, economic power, and it's Hard to remember a time when we didn't pay for literally everything with Yamcoin, the now ubiquitous cryptocurrency preferred by anthropologists across the globe. Could you tell us a bit about the history of Yamcoin and the cultural relativism index? That is an excellent question, Mr. Pierce. The the idea for an anthropology-based cryptocurrency came to us after we convinced the Wu-Tang clan to change the lyrics of their song cash rules everything around me, to yams rule everything around me. Just the thought of substituting yams for cash became very appealing to anthropologists. And let's face it, Mr. Beers, not not much of that cash anthropologists do make uh, really finds its way out of a very tight five-mile radius of the institutions where faculty work. Now, Yamcoin is a currency that allows for deregulated anthropological transactions on a global scale. It's based on something called a CRI, which we commonly know as the uh, Cultural Relativism Index. So, simply put, the more cultural relativism there is in the world, the more your Yamcoin is worth. This provides anthropologists more incentive to sway people to relativistic perspectives and to put down small-minded people like Ben Shapiro, for example, for their ethnocentrism. Thus, it is guided by what we call the invisible heart of the market, which is the antithesis of Adam Smith's invisible hand because nobody really likes being groped by the hand of some dead guy. Many of our faculty are paid in Yamcoin and make high salaries. We're talking really, really high, between thirty-four to $37,000 per year. We often tell them not to forget about the little people if we pay them in a portion of Yamcoin. Extreme wealth can lead to extreme pride, which can lead to extreme ethnocentrism, which is bad. Of course, the younger generation of anthropologists may feel like they've been priced out and that they've missed their moment. Is it too late to invest in Yamcoin? Well, uh, we, we have to say it is never too late 
to invest in Yamcoin because you can always find an ethnocentrist to convert. We found that they are all over the internet and we often call on themselves to identify themselves so we can show them the brilliant and blinding light of anthropology. We expect the CRI to rise at least three to four times in the next three years. And if it doesn't, we have done something wrong. That's a really inspiring answer. Shifting gears for a moment, since so many of us have been stuck at home during the pandemic, it's easy to let our wardrobe choices go to seed. Could you talk about some of the mandatory rules for anthropological apparel and how they apply differently depending on what kind of anthropologist you aspire to be? Thank you for bringing this up, Mr. Pierce. Now, everyone knows that anthropologists are the ultimate fashionistas. In fact, it is not uncommon to be approached by major designers and department stores to start up an anthropology clothing line by anthropologists for anthropologists. We told Gucci no. We told Ducey and Madonna no. We even told Bum Equipment no. The question for this is because clothing is such a major part of our identity that if we commodify it, we risk losing ourselves in an object. And Arjun Apaderai warned us about that one. Now, our book gives some really great advice for clothing that also includes a detailed breakdown of some of the jorts, the ponytail ties, the turquoise jewelry that archaeologists wear, and the garage sales that cultural anthropologists should hit up to find their pleated jeans and stirrup pants. For bioanthropologists, it is a legal requirement under Section 7 of Indiana law that you have a skull on literally everything you own. And if you do not, we will call the authorities. Linguistic anthropologists, ooh, wow. Um, well, maybe we shouldn't even go there. Just remember that you are not shopping for irony. You are shopping for you. So let your anthropology flag fly high. As we always say in Collegeville, skies out, thighs out. Let's talk about conversation skills. Your book provides guidance on how to rescue any ordinary boring conversation by making it about anthropology. So let's say I'm with my beloved walking along a European avenue after sunset. They turn to me and say something dull like, I feel like somehow I knew you even before I met you. Does that even make sense? What's my move here? That's an excellent question, Mr. Pierce. That does truly sound like a truly awful conversation. And you need to get out of it immediately and steer it towards anthropology. It is a literally horrifying conversation. I think I would immediately direct the conversation to something about why their statement is weak. In this case, the idea of knowing someone before you meet them implies some idea of cyclical time, which in a sense is the privileging the idea over linear time. So as soon as you start doing this, it becomes clear that you are creating a cultural bias against linear time, and that is bad. 
horrible, actually. So I think I would respond with, wow, sounds like you're really hung up on circular time. Did you know that there are other time conceptualizations that exist that are beyond your narrow world? Boom. You're welcome. Okay, here's another one. Let's pretend I work as a paramedic and my colleague says something boring like, this patient is going to asphyxiate from anaphylactic shock in less than three minutes. What do I say in this scenario? Well, this one's really easy, Mr. Pierce. I would, I would just say something like, wow, sounds like someone's really hung up on Western biomedicine and not really giving attention to other forms of disease theories that include the supernatural. Shazam, you're welcome. A lot of journalists will be scouring your book um, simply to try to get the inside scoop on the notorious jet ski incident at Collegeville, Indiana. This is a true story that you tell in order to illustrate how much bravery and commitment is needed to defend anthropology's territorial rights against incursions from other disciplines. Without spoiling it for readers, could you give us a brief rundown of what happened here? Well, the, the spoiler is actually in the very first sentence of that tip in our book. We once crashed a jet ski through the window of a political science department. The reasoning for it stems with some of the issues that we have had with other disciplines, and that is that they actually are your mortal enemy. Now, for example, we've never really met somebody from psychology that we've liked. And maybe that actually makes us some type of certain personality type, but we don't really care. The incident that you mentioned stems from a hiring line that the Collegeville Dean was planning on giving to political science. Now, everybody knows political science is just some watered-down form of political anthropology. I mean, who's the founder of political science? Benjamin Franklin? Who really knows? You see, Mr. Pierce, this is what frustrates us to the core and eventually led us to crash a jet ski through the window of their department as everybody watched from afar. No one was injured, but we do believe that a few posters of Washington, D.C. were waterlogged and had to be replaced. We won't tell you what happened after that because it's in the book, but we did end up getting what we wanted. Adherence to the Midwest paradigm know full well that powerhouse research is disseminated through devastating book reviews in prestigious regional journals. What's the formula here? Well, thank you for that. The hmm, that's a that is a really good question. The the formula that we have is that for one, you definitely need to choose the most prestigious regional journal to put your devastating book review into. Typically, the more words there are in the title of the journal, the more prestigious it is. So we'll just put that out there for everybody to, to hear. Now, our best advice for writing a devastating book review is to simply not really even read the book at all. Simply get the book, look at the cover, see what type of theoretical orientation there is within it, and simply find some way to attack that author without even reading their work. 
the goal here isn't to make friends. It's simply to make that author cry when they receive a book review that is so devastating that they believe the entire world is against them. It's some powerful stuff, Mr. Peters. What if I want to avoid being the subject of a devastating book review? Now, Mr. Peters, we, we hesitate to say that if you are not on our faculty or staff, you are automatically subject to a devastating book review. So there, there may actually be a devastating book review with your name on it. So we do privilege our own and our own Midwest paradigm. That is part of the Midwest paradigm. Now, Lucy, we talked about Lucy before, but she, she has written a few romance novels involving pirates. We have given her a free pass on those, even though we found some of the peg leg scenes to be highly, highly disturbing. Okay, but are you concerned that someone might write a devastating review of being your bestest anthropologist? Well, to be honest, Mr. Pierce, considering our book is the best anthropology book that has ever been written, ever, no. And... Essentially, to attempt to do so would mean that everyone would have to write a devastating review of the devastating review of our book. And no one wants to do that. No one wants to be subject to that type of scrutiny. That's a good point. One surprising thing that I learned from your book is that conferences are not for learning things and meeting people, but for winning. How do I win at a conference? Well. That's an interesting question. Now, conferences and conference attendances are the major driving force behind powerhouse faculty members, especially those that are regional. Now, our faculty tend to only attend the most prestigious regional conferences, and we will drive in together in the department with Sabre. So when you hear us rolling down Main Street, flashing conference badges, bumping Huey Lewis in the news, you know you're in for a treat. Now, what many people don't realize is that conferences are not cooperative. They are a competition. And if you don't win at least one prestigious regional conference, you may as well just hang it up and transfer to one of those less illustrious departments like Harvard or Yale. Sorry, we just, we need a second that it just is... It's just horrifying to think of that. So moving on, our book outlines several different ways to win at conferences, but for the sake of brevity, we'll give you just a little teaser. It all begins with the length of your title and your ability to make a pun so phenomenal it will cause conference goers to literally lose consciousness. This means that before you even get up to speak, you have placed your fellow conference goers at a total disadvantage. It is not uncommon to see participants exit a lecture hall after just seeing the length of one of our paper titles. For example, our cultural anthropologist has been really into human and animal relationships lately and has conducted groundbreaking research at the Indiana Dune Seaquarium over the summer. Now, her paper was entitled, A Porpoise-Driven Life, A Phenomenological Examination of Human-Dolphin Interaction 
at a mid-regional Atlantic Seaquarium in the greater northwestern Indiana region. That really turned some heads. So just to summarize, live in your conference opponent's head and make them pay you rent. You devote a section of the book to teaching techniques. In these uncertain times, how is the anthropology department at Collegeville, Indiana, pivoting in the pandemic? Well, that is a great question, Mr. Pierce. Now, there there have been some astonishing challenges due to the pandemic, forcing our faculty to think of new innovative ways to reach students. Now, we went remote for a while, and our biggest issue was finding a way to record all lectures in one 45-hour cut that we could then copy over to VHS and mail to the students while they were at home. Students could then record their responses and reactions and then send the tapes back to us. But the delay took some time. And so many of our 15 week classes actually ended up taking almost a year and a half. Some of those courses are still in progress from last year. So this has been a difficult time for us, Mr. Beers, and thank you for bringing that up. Now you are the chair of anthropology I want to know, have you seen the Netflix series, The Chair with Sandra O? To what extent does it coincide with the lived reality of being a chair? Ah, yes, yes. Now, we have heard about that program, but it is not out on videocassette yet, so it is impossible for many of our faculty members to watch. But from what we have heard, it seems to deal with an English department. And we find English to be highly ethnocentric because it is not in any other language other than English. Plus, we have it on good authority that Chaucer wasn't real, so it's probably best for everybody in English to just pack it up. Yeah, we'll be watching it. Sorry. Yeah, you'd probably hate it. Things get very serious with tip number 24 on advice to students about the academic job market. This is, of course, a sensitive area in which senior staff have a real responsibility towards students in conveying their realistic prospects of employment. Let's say I'm a young student, I've just taken out an enormous student loan and I've put it all down on an anthropology major. Take a deep breath. What happens next? Wow, this is this is an interesting question. And indeed, this is one of the issues that we have been facing for some time. So how can we be honest with students about what is going to happen after they graduate? There are some disturbing statistics indeed that students leave the academy and are literally mobbed with job offers. Some of these offers are so fantastic and competitive that they poison students' entire lives. Family, friends, suddenly come out of the woodwork to get a piece of the wealth, and it causes enormous social burdens without proper financial and emotional advising. Not to mention that when anthropology students get a taste of this wealth, it is often difficult to maintain it, and many anthropology graduates find themselves broke after just five years. Some develop an expensive yam habit, or maybe a CBD oil habit, 
is just simply too much. So we think we do have to be better about counseling, advising anthropology students, and simply getting them used to what their newfound fame will be after graduation. We simply owe it to them. You provide a lot of discipline-specific advice, from running a field school to cleaning archaeology labs to primatological description to beatboxing. But one thing that unites the four fields is the necessity of being blocked on Twitter by Steven Pinker. Why is this so important? Yes, you, you were referring to the fact that, that Mr. Steven blocked us for a very controversial tweet that we sent out. And as all of you might know, Mr. Steven is a strong proponent of evolutionary psychology and what he calls enlightenment. Now, we are vehemently against such ideas because it makes our Yamcoin value drop. Plus, evolutionary psychologists just retroactively explain anything anyway. I mean, who's going to go back in time and ask a hominin about their dreams and psychoanalyze them? Steven Pinker in a time machine? I don't think so. Plus, going back in time with Steven Pinker would make for the worst Back to the Future movie ever. We would have to entitle that movie Back to the Future Part Terrible. So, anyway, Mr. Pierce, we, we decided to just get him to stop it. So we Twittered the tweet heard round the world, which was defund Stevie Pinky on our webpage. It's all there. Just just go and look it up. And somehow Mr. Steven found it and had the audacity to block us. Now, we're not even sure how he saw it because we wrote Stevie Pinky. So maybe we were talking about another Stevie and not this Stevie? Baffling. Unfortunately, Stevie Pinky doesn't know who I am. How could I get his attention enough to have him block me? Mr. Pierce, this, this might be difficult, but one thing you could maybe try is Twittering defund Stevie Pinky, and then we can retwitter it, and then we can also tell everybody else to retwitter it, and then maybe Mr. Steven will find a way to block you. Oh, I can't wait to be noticed. Okay. The final section of your book is all about spreading the joy of anthropology, which is what I hope we're doing in this interview. I don't want to compel you to give away all the answers at the end of the book, but can you give us a general idea of why we should be sharing all this hard-won joy? This is some really powerful stuff here, Mr. Pierce. We find anthropology to be a guiding light and life force in people's lives. We see lives being turned around simply because they've majored in anthropology. Occasionally, if you're walking on a beach, you can sometimes see two sets of footprints in the sand. That other set of footprints is Franz Boas. And if there is a third set of footprints, we don't know who that is. So just be very careful. But what we need to do is spread the joy of Indiana-born Franz Boas to the rest of the world so they can be enlightened. As you famously said, 
the purpose of anthropology is to make the world safe for human amazingness. It's been a literally amazing interview. Thank you, Mr. Pierce. This has been quite wonderful. And you are simply a powerhouse scholar and very, very good luck with your iPodcast. We really enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us. And thank you to listeners of our prestigious regional iPodcast. My name's Mr. Pierce. Let's defund Stevie Pinky.